I'm Andrew Knight, and you're listening to the Music Therapy Research Podcast. this episode of the Music Therapy Research Podcast, I'm pleased to speak with Ronna Kaplan, who's chair of the Center for Music Therapy since 2004 and a music therapist at the Music Settlement in Cleveland since 1988. She's served a variety of clients, um, has participated in, in a bunch of research that we uh, discuss, particularly if you have interests in uh, neonatal research or what we call ne- uh, NICU, neonatal intensive care unit uh, research that she's conducted. And also she talks quite a bit about her uh, the various partnerships that she's had as a researcher and clinician. And that's really uh, one of the focus points for us, uh, especially um, in this, which is uh, part of the series that we're having with people who are on the editorial board, uh, who are reviewing journal articles and that sort of thing, and part of the direction of the journal called Music Therapy Perspectives. So the idea here is uh, that um, because Perspectives is more of a clinician-based research journal that uh, the people that we're interviewing also will be discussing a little bit more about their um, their clinical work and then how they infused research into it and what they learned from it as well. Rana is also a, a longtime uh, friend of mine in particular and, uh, and was AMTA president um, uh, when I uh, first started uh, uh, serving on her board of directors when she was uh, um, for her two-year term. And uh, that's how um, we also discuss a little bit about uh, what that sounded like in terms of research, uh, what sort of discussions we had uh, at that time. Uh, she talks a little bit about the evidence-based uh, music therapy um, uh, white paper that came out and some other um, of her desires, what she would like to see for the future of music therapy, just like we ask for all of our guests. But I think this episode is a good one. It's got a lot of advice for uh, clinicians interested in getting in research, which is what we always try to do on these podcasts and hope you enjoy this discussion between myself and Rana Kaplan. So, Ronnie Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us for the Music Therapy Research Podcast. The first question is one that we like to ask all the, the various guests uh, on this um, show, and that is, how did you first get interested in researching music therapy? Thanks, Andrew. Well, that's a great question, and I'll try to remember. Um, I think I first got interested in researching music therapy when I was a music therapy undergrad student at Michigan State. Learning about um, music therapy research, and uh, although there wasn't as much of it back then, there still was some, really whetted my appetite for more. And during my clinical work, I, I often sought out opportunities, which I'll tell you about later. But so the first actual music therapy research project that I did probably would have been in my Um, master's work at Kent State University. I got a master's in special ed and but because I wanted to make my master's apply more to music therapy I chose the MA track versus the MED and made myself do a thesis and so my thesis was entitled an assessment of mentally retarded children's behavioral preferences for playing various musical instruments. So um, 
that was really a long time ago that it was in the last millennium and <laughs> it was never published outside of of the actual thesis um which is documented of course but it still gave me the tools to use and um learn about the process learn about how you needed to have an experimenter i couldn't actually put the instruments into the hands of the the clients I had, Deforia Lane was one of my experimenters when she, this was during her practicum. Oh, that's and a claim to fame. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, I like to point that. I used to point that out to to prior practicum students when I was teaching and said, well, but Deforia Lane did her practicum with me. And, <laughs> and, so and then one of the teachers at the facility also was an experimenter because I was doing the um, recording of the duration of the children's interaction with the instruments. Anyway, so that wedded um, the the class at Michigan State wetted my appetite, and then I tried to apply all of the master's classes that I could to have something to make it more relevant in my music therapy practice. And do you remember? Uh, do you remember when you were getting advised? for that for that thesis project or any of these other courses um i guess the leading question is to ask did you get any pushback from advisors that realized that you were just trying to sneak in music therapy things into a special ed masters but uh did they sort of see kind of what was interesting about about the intersection of music therapy and special ed for them at the time they definitely did see the the intersection as well as the relevance and um in fact one of the gentlemen actually volunteered to be my advisor. I switched advisors in the course um, of the process, partly because he was very much more interested. And um, <clears throat> so th they didn't give me pushback at all, which was great. And I really feel as though doing the research made um, the whole master's process not only more relevant, but I learned more because actually I had a pretty easy time in the classes themselves. And so this gave me uh, another layer of learning. I'm wondering, usually people finish something that's as daunting. Oh, I put daunting on there. But when they finish something as intensive as a thesis, sometimes they are ready to completely forget ever writing scholarly again. And, uh, but other times it, um, makes them think in the back of their mind, maybe I, maybe there, I could do more of this and I could be involved in more research. Do you remember what you felt like, uh, about that time you were just finishing your master's? Were you one of those people that this is spurring you on t to do more? You said it whetted your appetite, but you know, there, there, there are those sort of gnarly, uh, the hidden underbelly of the difficulty that research is. And I'm wondering, did you feel very motivated when you were leaving or did you feel like we'll have to take a break and focus on being a clinician for a while and then maybe I'll come back to the research thing? It wasn't as though that I felt like I had to take a break. It was more the reality of the situation that I I was going back into the full-time clinical world, although one of the other professors was wanting to encourage me to to get a mass, excuse me, a doctorate in special ed. I really um, didn't want to do that at the time because I really wanted to, to dive back into music therapy. And so 
uh, it actually wasn't until later. That was um, during my first music therapy clinical position. I was working at a place called Rosemary Center, which is uh, run by Catholic Charities, and it's a residential center for um, children and now adults also with severe and profound disabilities. And um, anyways, I had to go back into the full-time setting, but when I came to the music settlement a number of years later as a clinician, eventually a few different research opportunities did present themselves to me. And so if I hadn't remembered about the thesis, I would have said that the first actual foray into music therapy research was when I was working here at the music settlement. What are some of those past research projects that come to mind and what do you remember learning uh, from that process? Well, I want to take one step back first and say uh-huh. that with the title of my thesis having the word assessment in it, that actually, I believe, helped me become involved in a bigger project that was it was in 1980 that it started and it was these trainings and modules that was at that time, which is not PC to say it now, but it was called Music Therapy for Handicapped Children. Some of the people listening might know about those different modules. There was a there was an assessment module and there were modules for children with developmental disabilities, children with physical children with physical disabilities. Um, children with social emotional disabilities, etc. And uh, Wanda Latham was one of the people who spearheaded this, and Donald Michelle. And it was a three-year project. And so, because, as I said, my thesis was an assessment, I believe that's how I got into the first cohort for this project. And um, I had to present about the assessment thesis in Texas in this two-week program that summer and then each summer after that it was two more weeks and then we went back into our communities and provided in-service training to professionals working with children with disabilities anyway so that even though that thesis didn't really lead me immediately to more research it led me to more opportunities and to spread the word and train people about what music therapy is and it was only five years after 94 142 so ieps weren't that old and Mm -hmm. it presented a lot of opportunities and isn't it still interesting that that, like you said, the research, it's, you know, research isn't necessarily always about publication. It's, it's about applicability sometimes. And yours seem to have a really direct application, uh, pretty substantial application immediately, at least in your uh, local area. Right. Yes, I would agree. And, um, and, and actually research application, you know, when you talked about how did I first get interested in researching music therapy from the beginning, when I learned about music therapy, it, it was more than, oh, this is a nice thing to do. I like to work with people and I'm a great musician. I want to marry those two things together. But I was inquisitive and still am and wanted to know the whys and the hows. And so I think that came early on. And when I was a student, I was able to join NAMT. And so then I got the journals you know, back when even I was a student. So, so some of my other past research projects, which 
weren't as long ago as the thesis came about, as I said, in my work as a music therapist here at the Music Settlement. So there are basically two main projects. Uh, one of them, I was involved in a multi-site study in the NICU. <clears throat> and Debbie Bates was working at Akron Children's Hospital at that time, and then I was placed for two years in the NICU at the Cleveland Clinic, and Libertor Reed was placed for two years at the NICU at Metro Health Hospital, and then there were a few music therapists, Emily Darcy and uh, Courtney Whitmer were at Rainbow Babies and Children's, which is part of University Hospitals in Cleveland, and um, we were doing the second study the first study was at Akron Children's, I believe, and it was a pilot. And in the pilot study, there were very promising results where it was um, a controlled study, a randomized controlled study, as it was in the pilot, and then our multi-site one was also. In the pilot study, the quote-unquote music babies had an average length of stay that was 12 days less than the babies who received the standard care with no music. Unfortunately, in the multi-site study, we didn't have as great results as that. <laughs> um, I learned a lot in the process, not only about working in a NICU and working in a hospital, because the only other hospital experience I had was working in what's now the Cleveland Clinic Children's Rehab Hospital. It used to be a freestanding hospital, and I did that for one summer when I was in college. And I worked as a child care assistant, and I was placed in the nursery and worked mostly with infants and toddlers. But so that was my only other exposure to working in a hospital back then. And so working in a hospital, in a NICU, uh, we had to give in-services to the nurses and the nurses' aides. And so that was quite challenging because, um, you know, a baby needing surgery or a baby being admitted, that took precedence to my little in-service that was just explaining why we were doing this study. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I learned a lot about details in terms of the different scales that they use in terms of reporting the, the babies in terms of pain or uh, their state, their level of activity. I learned a lot about going through their charts and finding the information that I needed to record on our own data sheets. I learned a lot about things like retinopathy of newborns and other types of auditory screenings, other types of tests. And I learned a lot about potential problems of preemies. I learned a lot about developmental differences. And I learned about the challenges in the consent process. So it's challenging enough to get somebody to con consent to research, but then think of the added stress to the new mom. And then the new mom had a preemie. Maybe she hasn't even held the baby yet. Who knows? And then the added stress of it's a randomized controlled study so the parents don't find out if their baby is in the music or the non-music group until after they give the consent. And there were a couple times where after we opened the envelope that revealed uh, which group their child would be in, that if the parents 
received the news that their baby was a non-music baby, it was like that, well, then why do I want to do this? I withdraw. Thank you anyways. Bye-bye. And then when we wanted to do another level of follow-up, then we had to go back to the IRB. So I learned a lot about IRBs. And just as a side note, so I'm the second chair or the second director of music therapy here at the music settlement and louise Steele was my predecessor she was the first director and when she began working here and started the music therapy program there was no such thing as an irb and she was a very prolific researcher and research could be done here on our community-based campus which is in university circle um, in cleveland and then once IRBs came into play, that changed the landscape for how music therapists from the music settlement could conduct research. Because really after that, we we needed an IRB. And so most of the research, really most of the research that we conducted um, from then on was working with partners. So for example, our partners were those hospitals that I mentioned. We um and, and our therapists did do subsequent and prior research, for example, in palliative care in the clinic and the burn unit at Metro, et cetera. We, we did a lot of research at Beachbrook, which is a, was a residential treatment center for kids with severe behavioral and emotional issues. And um, so the IRB process, it's important, of course, to secure and ensure that all the subjects are provided their rights and you know there's a special vulnerability for certain populations and so we're observing all of that but it it changed the landscape as i said so so i learned a lot um i learned about how your research doesn't always go the way you want it to (laughs) and then coming from that it, you know, I mentioned a little bit ago uh, of how I learned so much about premature infants and about the NICU. Um, but also what I learned about were, was lullabies. And it's kind and all of us, the four of us who were the, the last four in that study, Debbie, um, Anne, Reed, as I mentioned, and Courtney Whitmer and myself, we ended up uh, then going into more depth into studying lullabies. And that launched us into this creation of a scale called the PILLARS. That's our acronym for it. It's the Premature Infant Lullaby Rating Scale. And we ended up testing the validity of the scale. We went to some experts in NICU music therapy first, and we we tested it with some Ohio music therapists. And uh, it's in the pro- we're in the process of writing that. But so that was an interesting trajectory. Um, we were done in the NICU. Unfortunately, there wasn't a direct line after the project ended in a couple of the NICUs to continue music therapy. So, but we went on to study the actual lullabies because we didn't want lullabies to be overly stimulating, especially for premature infants. So, so that's another path that we took. You know, it also occurs to me that, you know, NICU music therapy is also one of these areas, certainly emerging, emer- emerging music therapy research, but, but you really had to do a lot of inventing the wheel. Uh, you know, these first couple times around, and you and you had a team to do it with. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit as my follow-up to this question. What was it, What what's kind of the, uh, what's 
what's what are some of the big takeaways about working as a clinician and researcher team and you know getting together what are the what are some of the pros and cons of of uh, having something that's you know a pretty substantial uh interprofessional team there well there's there's two things that i would say first of all when you said we we had to invent the wheel we were able to find as much research as we could you know jane stanley was very prolific in the and Joanne Lowy had some research as well. And then we also looked to non-music therapists to give us research about, oh, things like noise levels in the NICU. Just as one example, that was a gentleman whose last name I believe is Philbin. And that was one example. So I have a whole like three or four inch binder filled with all these articles that we found. And then Deanna Hansen Abramite has written more recently and in some of the books published that she edited and on medical music therapy. And so we did have some people to draw on, but the team was really good, especially, well, both in the uh, first project where we were working in the NICU and then for the pillars, because we really were able to bounce things off one another. And um, with Debbie Bates at that time, when we were doing the research in the NICU, she was the lead music therapist and um, she had more experience than I did in the NICU, so that was helpful. And um, and we also had the nurse was the PI, uh, the principal investigator, so she w- she was able to be very educational. We had adequate training, which was great to learn about all the different components, all the different forms that we would need to fill out and turn in and such. And then when we were doing this pillars research, we we really were able to as I said, bounce ideas off one another and listen to a lullaby CD that we got at the library and say, oh my goodness, this is really not, this is really not sedating in my opinion. And then we started thinking, well, what makes it too stimulating? And then we started talking about the different musical elements (laughs) and surprise, surprise. So then we were able to base our rating scale on the different elements. And I know that um, Shirley Tan, who used to work for the Music Settlement, when she was working on research in the burn unit at Metro Health, she also delved into relaxation music and she ended up using some musical elements as well. So uh, the team was really important, was very helpful. Um, And I know that some clinicians feel as though they can't do it by themselves, and I certainly understand those feelings. One thing that was challenging, even with this team, is is that we were working as clinicians, and so we had to carefully schedule time to meet, and it's taking a long time to uh, write the article in its final stages, partly because everyone has so many other things on their plates. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask. I, I think that's what's really admirable about this team is that uh, when you mention the team, it's a team of clinicians. And I assume that if if you did not have enterprising, uh, you know, minds or personalities or, or interest in research, and if you didn't do any of this research, that your bosses and the higher ups would have been just fine with that. If, uh, but but that you are bringing something different by by addressing your curiosities and using research to do it. 
uh, as clinicians. It, it reminds me really of, of so much of what we've been talking about in AMTA for the past five to ten years, really, that it's really, you know, if just stimulating anybody's interest in research, um, making sure that's not just a bunch of PhDs uh, uh, who are teaching at our universities that are the only ones doing research, but stimulating, making sure clinicians know that 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 they have uh, valuable data, uh, that they do have the uh, the educational training to do it. We've got this clinician research award, which sort of connects a clinician with with an academician, so that they can uh, try to get their foot in the door that way and and uh, even be even get a grant a little bit of grant money for it. So I think there's a lot of ways there. And just as a quick detour, um, I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about um, about when you were AMTA president. I remember you first talking about, you know, the 2020 vision, you know, now it's almost 2017. So we're only three years away from 2020 vision. But um, but when you were AMTA president, what do you remember about the state of research at the time? And what do you remember thinking? Uh, here's something that um, I here's something that I think AMTA needs to be involved with from a research perspective. Well, I think that in order for us to separate ourselves from the um, what Angie Snell calls the labor substitutes. In other words, the bedside musicians, the music thanatologists, they all have a place on the continuum. I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying as being negative, but in order for us to be recognized as therapists, um, we need the research to support um, the outcomes that we say we have. So we need the research to substantiate what we do and to bring us more accountability for reimbursement, for program development, and so and for cost effectiveness um, to really show the value of music therapy in a variety of settings. I think that when I was president of AMTA, I was very much behind um, the idea that, for example, we had the autism priority and, and research was a part of that and some studies came out of that. I know that Patrick Kern and Marsha Humpel and I believe Allie Chandler had a survey that really laid out um, a lot of different issues and concepts about music therapy for children and young adults with autism. and and I know now we I was actually disappointed that I couldn't go to the music therapy, what is it, 2025? Uh, MT, yeah, MTR uh, 2025, Music Therapy Research 2002 or 2025, right? So because I feel really strongly that that is going to just move us ahead. I think that one of the core aspects, well, when I was president, I remember that we published a definition of evidence-based music therapy. So that was a big step. I think one of the core aspects of the, the MTR Research 2025 is helping clinicians understand and apply research. And there was a great session that I just attended at the 2016 AMTA conference. It was given by Clarissa Carlson, and she talked about the, the clinical situations that people have and their theoretical frameworks. And I thought, what a good way 
to talk about what a good way to talk about it's actually she called it the contextual well no i'm sorry the theoretical framework so she was using the example of of when she was in pediatric hospitals and so she was able to pull on sherry robb's contextual support um during procedures um as part of the framework but she also mentioned so many other people like piaget and um, she also talked about the gate control theory of pain mm-hmm. and really tying in a whole bunch of different models. And so it just made me think, wouldn't it be valuable, for example, for my staff members to to look at a particular client or a particular group that they do in an outreach agency and try to dig in and say, why am I doing this the way that I do it? And what is my framework? You know, like I could say that sometimes I might use the ORF approach um, or um, take some aspects of creative music therapy um, when working with a young child with autism who I knew wasn't ready to come in and sit down and do something that was more activity-based because he was crying and and aggressive. And so I used clinical improvisation to match. I, I knew that I figured out that he was singing in the, excuse me, that he was crying in the key of C minor. Hmm. And that's what I started playing in until he was really ready to do something that was more structured. So anyways, I think that that is definite, there's definitely a big place at the table for clinical music therapists, even if they say they are not going to do research, we need to help them be able to apply the research. So either to, to, to look at it two ways, to either go to a journal and read an article and say, well, how could I apply this in my own work? Or to flip it the way I said it before, all right, I'm doing this. Why am I doing it this way? What am I drawing on? So I really think that would be a great exercise and not just an exercise for the sake of doing something, but to really be um, educational and analytical. I think that's a really good reminder that, especially when we're talking to students and new clinicians, which sort of leads into my next question too, but but it's a reminder that when we're talking about research, we're not just talking about here's the intervention, here's the here's where the music was added, here's the results, or even qualitative research, here's what I observed, here's who I interviewed, and so on and so forth, but that you're also talking about research that exists in a theoretical uh, mindset. So when you're talking about theoretical frameworks and, and rationale for um, for conducting certain kinds of research, that research is a really, really big word and really means a lot of different things and that people can be, can be thinking about these, some of these other publications, like you mentioned, uh, Dr. Rob's uh, uh, work as well. And so we certainly need a lot more of those conceptual ideas uh, and, and theory building uh, for sure. And so what, what else do you, what else would you say to somebody else? Uh, or maybe you're floating around at uh, the conference next year or something and somebody says, you're Ronna Kaplan. I, I, I've uh, I read one of your papers, and I'm and I'm interested in research. Uh, what what advice uh, do you find yourself giving excited young researchers or even students if they happen to be at that level? I think that um, for students and for young clinicians, well, really clinicians of any age, that I would want to encourage them to be good consumers of research from the very beginning. 
and to ask questions if they don't understand and to try to think about how they could adapt something that they read into their own practice that would make their practice better or um, provide more efficacy and evidence for them. I also would recommend that if somebody were interested in doing research that and they and they were clinicians, that they should try to find a person that could be their mentor or that could be their partner partner in crime in terms of, for example, somebody from a university who has access to an IRB who is then able to advise them and maybe be their PI or co-investigator so that it does feel more doable. And I would tell them about that clinician-based research grant because I don't think a lot of people know about that. And of course, there's other opportunities that are bigger, such as the FULTS. But I would encourage them to not give up before they start and to think small, to try to do pilots, something like that. Yeah, that's a good point, especially pilots, exploratory feasibility studies, those sorts of things. Don't think that you have to jump right in with an enormous phenomenological qualitative study or an enormous... uh, uh, randomized control trial and everything. And th- sometimes the final question is uh, that, that we like to ask uh, guests for the podcast is the hardest too, but what are some important aspects that you think uh, we are looking at for the future of music therapy research? And that could be taken a lot of different ways. Is Are there things that you think, w- like what do you want music therapy research to do for the profession? What do you want to see more research in? Do you want to see it in populations? Do you want to see it Uh, look a certain way? Do you want it to be in different journals? Should we get more journals? It's really a hypothetical. What do you think? I I think that there are a lot of different things that we could do. And this kind of tags along with the previous question. I would like to see more specificity. If if there um, is an article or a project that is describing a music therapy intervention, that they give more detail to what it was. And there, there's, I'm citing Sherry Robb again. She had this article um, with Deb Burns and um, Carpenter. I can't remember her first name, but where they really laid out some guidelines for what should be included when you're describing your protocol. So I think that if you're doing that type of research where this fits with your model, then I think we want to be more specific. So I think that that goes with advice as well as important aspects for the future. I think that we should publish in non-music therapy journals, but I also think um, that we should continue with the music therapy journals. And again, I think it, it, it partly depends on what the focus is and what the purpose is you know, how we choose which journal we would submit to. Mm -hmm. How did you choose that with your uh, NICU studies? Well, um, the the first NICU study in which I was involved never got submitted. And then the second one, the pillars, we are going to a music therapy journal because we believe that the tool that we created needs to be used by a trained music therapist. Mm Mm-hmm. So we don't want to just put it out there for um, someone because, first of all, they need to be a musician and then we want it to be a music therapist tool. And some of our colleagues have already asked if they could use it. 
So it, it really depends on the purpose of the research where a therapist or team might end up wanting to submit it. Right. Yeah. I think it's really, uh, I, I think it's extra fascinating for me sitting on the other side of the microphone here because I, I really get to hear from people who have been involved in many different stages of the history of music therapy. And I, uh, when I ask about the future of, of music therapy, people who have been in, you know, only got their first publication like a year or two ago. Uh, and then there's, uh, people on the podcast who, who have been researching a long time and have seen the trajectory of, of research and, and also have noted some of those impacts. Like, you know, even for me and uh, for, for Blythe talking with our students at Colorado State, just explaining here's where, the, here's where the research journals started, here's why they started, here's what their focus is. Um, and then when they see us, you know, publishing in certain journals and asking why are you publishing in that one over this one, how is this helping music therapy? There's such a there's such nuanced answers, but it's really fun to, to see um, how curious they are about the research world. It is really a hard thing to to unfold one you know one pedal at a time, so to speak, um, because there's it, it's really complex and and there's a lot of uh, possibilities for us. So uh, I appreciate your your expounding on it, and I also appreciate your initial answer, which was all of the above, <laughs> which was D, all of the above. We'll just well, we'll try it all. Right, because I do think that there um, is great value in having population-specific research. And, for example, there's more research with children with autism than there is with adults with autism. That's just right. And there's many different populations that we need more research on. I wanted to actually go back and talk about one other study that we did. Um, This was while Louise Steele worked here. I, is when we started it, and it was published, I believe, in in JMT 2005. It's music therapy outcomes for individuals with autism spectrum disorders, and this was really an interesting trajectory as well because it came about uh, because when we were receiving money um, funding from United Way, there was a push to develop outcomes-based measurement. Well, in music therapy, of course, we were really already doing that. If you look at the music settlement as community music school, well, the Center for Music Therapy has from the very beginning been data-based. So we were, um, it was easy for us to write objectives for United Way because we had already been doing that. But anyhow, so we started um, collecting data on outcomes um, in a different way, and we had more uniform forms, and we developed a generalization survey um, questionnaire for parents and caregivers. So we were able to have a lot of outcome data. And so it ended up that Louise and I wrote this article. Uh, we had very positive results. Everybody um, in the study eventually met their primary objectives, and there was great data supporting that the clients had generalized the skills that were addressed in music therapy in other aspects of their lives. And and generalization to me is one of my big soapbox issues because it's great if somebody can uh, demonstrate a response or a skill for 45 minutes once a week, but what about the other six days and the other um, hours that they're awake? So. Right. I was really happy to see that, um, and 
And it has one of the the great things is that I believe it's been um, cited in numerous other articles after that, which makes me feel really good that it was worthwhile. And and this is something that happened. I think I mentioned several minutes ago that I went to Michigan State University, and unfortunately, that music therapy degree program although it was the first in the world, was discontinued. But when I was president-elect of AMTA, I was invited to come to the MSU board meeting and speak on behalf of music therapy. And there are only three of us who were able to do that. So I was president-elect of, of AMTA, also was the chair of a center for music therapy in a community music school, and Michigan State had a community music school with music therapy. Mm-hmm. And I was an alumna, so I had all these lovely stakeholder hats to wear. And so it was myself and it was um, a legislator uh, who happens to be uh, Angie Snell's father. And it was a parent of a young child with autism. And I was the second of the three speakers and we each had three minutes and then we were basically almost gonged. But um, so I was standing there right behind the parent, you know, ready to speak when he was done. And he started quoting an article and he said, you know, music therapy was shown to be really effective and everybody, it was 100% success. And I stood there and I said, oh, my gosh, he's quoting me. <laughs> so that was really a You're wonderful. You're being cited in real time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the sad thing was I think they had basically already decided to discontinue the program. Right. But it was very validating for me as a clinician researcher to be cited. And then I got up there and I said, by the way, because I had written remarks, <laughs> But, of course, I had to add this little ad lib part. Uh, He just quoted my study. (laughs) So that was a pretty uh, validating and neat experience to happen in regard to research. That's pretty great. That's, uh, yeah, like I said, being cited in real time. Somebody comes up to you, uh, or whether it's like my hypothetical before, where you're Ronna Kaplan. I've read one of your articles. (laughs) Or, or, Or book chapters or whatever. Uh, whatever else of your production it might be. But uh, but thanks very much for your time and, and all the discussion about uh, music therapy research. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the podcast associated with the Music Therapy Research Blog found at musictherapyresearchblog.com. Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, music therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. If you enjoy the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance. Thanks in advance.